Good morning. I also, uh, before we begin today's class, I should mention that tomorrow night I'm scheduled to give a class in Surfside tomorrow at 7.30ish in the show called Congregation Magain David. Uh, that's uh, 93rd and Harding, and all are invited to attend. The title for tomorrow night's class is The Heart of Repentance. For today, we are discussing Parshios, Nitzavim, and Vayelech. And we will, in terms of the parsha, mostly focus on parshas nitzavim, but we will also be looking back at last week's parsha, parshas ki savo. The title for today's class for parshas nitzavim vayelach, and in preparation for the yamim noraim, is live and let live. This is a common phrase which we will talk about in a moment. How it originally came to be a saying, and then how it developed over time. Chodesh Elul is sponsored by Nat and Eti Perez and family for the success of their children, and Eloi Nishmas, David ben Masoda, Zichron Olivracha, David Biton, beloved father and grandfather. His dedication and great midos are dearly missed on his third yard site. We dive in together with the Perez family and all the extended families, for the elevation of the soul of David ben Masoda and made the wonderful deeds, learning and commitment to the Jewish people that his descendants are currently living be a tremendous merit of benefit for him. This week's class is dedicated in the merit of Rufuah Shlema for David ben Aliza, Eitan Shmuel ben Chana Sima, David ben Leah, Dobert Svihersh ben Dina, Yosef Shimon ben Serina, Ayelet Pastal Yachaya, and Hannah, Miriam, Basrechel, Rizal. We definitely wish that they should have a refuah shlema among all holy Israel in need of a refuah. So, according to Wikipedia, live and let live is the non-aggressive cooperative behavior that developed spontaneously during the First World War, particularly during periods of prolonged trench warfare on the Western Front. And perhaps one of the most famous examples of this is what's called the Kratzmach, Kratzmach being Christmas truce of 1914. The Kratzmach truce was a series of widespread unofficial ceasefires along the Western Front of the First World War around the holiday time of Kratzmach 1914. And that became known as Live and Let Live. It is a process that can be characterized as the deliberate abstaining from the use of violence during war. Sometimes it can take the form of overt truces or pacts negotiated locally by soldiers. At other times, it can be a tacit behavior, sometimes characterized as letting sleeping dogs lie, whereby both sides refrain from firing or using their weapons or deliberately discharging them in a ritualistic or routine way that signals their non-lethal intent. Despite the early usage of live and let live in times of war, it is used in modern times with a different application. According to Collins Dictionary, it is a proverb that means relative tolerance. You say live and let live as a way of saying that you should let other people behave in the way that they want and not criticize them for behaving differently from you. This more contemporary definition leads to the following philosophical query. Is this perspective of live and let live a morally correct one? 
or is it simply a method of avoiding confrontation, but not actually good for humanity? The Torah clearly stands against a philosophy that promotes ignoring and remaining apathetic towards other people in many, many ways. In addition to the basic laws of being sensitive and aware of other people's needs, for example, Haftorah that we read on Yom Kippur is how people have a tendency to ignore even their brethren that are in dire straits. In addition to that are the more pointed laws of teaching, rebuking, or teaching in general, and shared responsibility. Indeed, this week's parsha explicitly teaches that we all bear responsibility for the revealed sins of other people. This is chapter 29, sentence 28. Concealed, meaning hidden, acts concern our God Hashem, meaning alone. But with overt acts, meaning revealed activities, it is for us and our children ever to apply all the provisions of this teaching. Commonly, we refer to this as Kol Yisrael Arabim Zeb or Kol Yisrael Arabim Zelazem. My father has a beautiful discussion on the difference on Zeb and Zelazem, but that's not for today. Here is a Rashi comment that highlights and elaborates on the collective responsibility mentioned in this verse. And as we are pointing out, collective responsibility necessarily means we do not live by a live and let live credo. On this sentence, which says, the secret things belong unto Hashem, our God. But if you, the people, the Jewish people say, what can we do? You threaten all the Jewish people with punishment because of the sinful thoughts of one individual? Because the Torah in our parsha says, lest there be a man among you, a woman or a family whose heart turns away from Hashem. That becomes our responsibility because indeed the Torah follows that up with the plagues that come to the land of Israel. But surely no man can know the secret thoughts of his fellow. So I reply, says Hashem, I do not threaten to punish you because of secret thoughts, meaning poor actions, for these belong to the Lord our God and he will exact punishment from that individual. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may put away the evil from our midst, and if we do not execute judgment upon them, then the whole community will, yes, be punished. Okay, Rashi points out that this actually was triggered, this covenant of mutual responsibility was triggered when the Jewish people crossed over, and they entered the land of Israel, and they performed the ceremony of the cursings and the blessings on Mount Gerizim and Mount Evol, which we will be discussing today with a very interesting perspective. So if we look at a very brief overview, I'm not going to go through all the sentences, but a brief overview of the first 20 sentences of the Parshas Mitzavim, you know, we can then realize a very major question. The first few sentences of Mitzavim describe the covenant that is now, here at the end of the 40 years, of the Jewish people in the desert, there is a covenant that is now being established between Hashem and the Jewish people, and that every single Jew is included in this act, in addition to all manner of converts. In fact, Rashi says that there were people who converted with a subterfuge, with a ploy, making pretend that they were not part of the seven nations of the land of Israel. They pretended that they were not, and they did convert in Moshe's time, and Moshe assigned them with the tasks of being water drawers, and wood choppers. Those converts are also included, even those people that converted through chicanery, plus Jews not even yet born. So all Jews are included in this covenant here in Parshish Nitzavim. 
The Torah then goes on to prognosticate a potential scenario where a man or a woman or a family or a tribe may consider themselves free to act however they please, including doing idolatry. The Torah declares that Hashem will not want to forgive this person, family, or tribe, and that Hashem will excise them from the rest of the community and erase their name from under the heavens. So what we have is a man, a woman, a family, or a tribe. They somehow give themselves permission to act in whatever way they want. And the Torah describes how Hashem will cut these people off to the point that Hashem will erase their name from under the heavens. Immediately following that prognostication, the Torah relates how later generations of Jews, like us today or earlier than us today, as well as all other nations of the world, are going to be astonished and question how it came to pass that the Jewish people whom Hashem redeemed from Egypt with the magnificent history that we know, how did it come to be that they were expelled from Eretz Israel and that Hashem cast them out with tremendous fury and wrath? And they will answer, says the Torah, that the Jewish people did not adhere to the covenant of their fathers and they strayed and committed idolatry. If we just step back and look at these sentences, we need to be shocked because immediately following the erasure by Hashem of the above mentioned renegade individuals, families, or tribe, we are thrust forward into a retrospective which this tells us of the devastation of Eretz Israel and that all the Jewish people are in exile and that Jews and non-Jews alike will speculate as to why this destruction and exile occurred. So we have to ask ourselves, what indeed is the reason that all of us were thrust into suffering and exile if it is only a subset of our nation that seceded and sinned and that that subset themselves, Hashem cut off and erased their names from under the heaven. How can we say that the reason, how does the Torah and our should say that the reason that the Jewish people were cast out is because they forsook the covenant that Hashem, the God of their fathers, made with them when he freed them from the land of Egypt. It could have been one person or one family or one tribe. How does this suddenly come to explain the exile for all the people for these thousands of years? So, we will now look back to last week's parsha and the unique event that took place on the mountains of Gerizim and Eval. I want to share with you a question that occurred to me for the first time this year, and I've you know, run it by a few different people, and it's kind of amazing that it's black and white in front of us, and we somehow don't realize what the Torah is saying. In Parshas Kisavo, the Torah commands that the Jewish people, immediately upon their entry, their arrival, into Eretz Israel, must perform a ceremony of offerings and recite very loudly pronouncements of specific blessings and curses on these mountains that we call Mount Gerizim and Mount Evil. The rabbis tell us that the Levine stood between the two mountains, and on the other two mountains, we had six tribes in each mountain, including a portion of the tribe of Levi, was on one of the mountains, in addition to the Levine that were in the middle. The Levine would face Mount Gerizim when they would bless the people, and everybody would answer Amen. And the Levine would turn 
and curse the people towards Mount Aval, and everyone would answer Amen. Now, there are specific curses that the Torah mentions, and among these curses, the, among the list of these curses are, for example, cursed is the person who misleads a blind person on the road. You can see that as a pretty terrible thing. Person, so to speak, puts a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Of course, allegorically, it means, means giving vulnerable people uh, bad advice. Okay, we can understand that's pretty bad. Cursed is the person who does that. The Torah then says, cursed is the person who twists or perverts the judgment of the convert, orphan, or widow. Yeah, that's also pretty bad. Then the Torah goes on, cursed is the person who lies with any animal. Wow, that's really bad. And cursed is the person who lies with his sister. Also, these things seem kind of beyond the pale to us. So we can pretty much understand why these activities or people are cursed. And at first glance, these curses resonate because these behaviors are clearly bad or worse, terrible and horrible. A question, however, arises when we think of these verses framed in a positive sense as blessings. For example, blessed is the person that does not twist the judgment of the convert, orphan, or widow. Okay, even though we think it's pretty horrible for a person to take advantage of a convert, an orphan, or a widow, we say, you know what, let's bless the person that does not do that. Might be a little hard to understand, but we can maybe swallow that. So it's not so strange to bless such a person. Okay, the question becomes much more disturbing when we imagine screaming out loud, which is what the Torah says, in a loud voice, blessed is the person that does not lie with his sister. Amen. Blessed with the person that does not lie with any animal. Amen. Really? That's our focus? We're blessing people that don't do what we would consider the most heinous, most unspeakable acts? That's what the Torah is saying, blesses the person. Imagine a person goes to the local rabbi and says, Rabbi, please give me a blessing for the new year. He says, blessed are you that does not lie with any animal. Most of us would not take kindly to such a blessing. So what is it about these blessings and curses that the Torah is telling us to place at such a prominent and important uh, pedestal at this time in history that are on our immediate arrival into the land of Israel, before we lift one weapon to conquer any land or try to conquer the city of Yericho by walking around the city, etc., before we do anything, we go to these mountains, we pronounce these curses, and we pronounce these blessings. It's just difficult to understand why we're placing such a heavy emphasis on these type of blessings. Essentially, we are saying, Blessed are those people that are not extremely perverted, at least in some of these blessings. So what I'd like to suggest as a beginning, a way to understand this, a good building block is the commentary of the Sephorno, which we're not going to use his answer, but it's a good way to see how he's understanding the context of these blessings and curses. And that will more clearly outline the answer that we want to say. It'll underscore an essential component that we are going to use as our answer for today. So the Sephardo learns that these curses were specifically pointing to periods in history where the leadership of the people were corrupt and perverse. 
the common people were unable to bring these leaders to task, and thus they needed to condemn their behaviors in order to not be included as having responsibility for those leaders that were sinners. So essentially, the Sephorno is saying that one of the major purposes, maybe according to him it's the major purpose, but certainly one of the major purposes of these blessings and curses were specifically to address those Jews that were unreachable, that the rest of the Jews could not affect. I'm sure this is not going to sound all too unfamiliar, unfortunately. Sometimes there are people in positions of power that are corrupt, but the system under which we currently live doesn't allow us to do anything about it because they're in power. They are in charge of said government. So says the Sephorno, that can be the case, unfortunately, in our own Jewish history. And those people who are in power, presumably he means they take license for themselves and allow themselves to do what they want, knowing that they will not be brought to trial and to justice. And therefore, we as Jews have a responsibility to condemn those behaviors, even though they're beyond our reach. And so therefore, from the get-go, so to speak, the Jewish people upon their entry into the land of Israel are talking to those Jews that will ultimately be in leadership positions and corrupt and condemning their negative behaviors so as not to bear responsibility for the perverse activities of the leadership. That's what the Sorvorno says. Now, <clears throat> building on that idea, what we can definitely extract from the Sephorno, but also make sense even beyond what he's saying, is that part of the purpose of these blessings and curses is to tell us that if we do not condemn those Jews that we cannot reach, maybe we don't know of their corruption or perversion. Maybe we have no way to hold them to account. Maybe these are not Jews with whom we can communicate. At the very least, in our minds, and in our prayers and in our declaration, we must condemn these heinous behaviors. But now we get to the good part. The contrast is that we must equally bless any progress and ability that they have to overcome those temptations and those desires and those activities. And so therefore the Torah goes out of its way to say that in our minds, we must be connected to every Jew, even the ones that are committing these most heinous atrocities, things that we would say, seriously, any animal, sister, mother-in-law, and the rest of the list of the curses. Because the Torah is telling us, you know what, these activities are tenable. People do do these things. It can happen. It does happen. And we have a choice as Jews. Most of us, would simply say, well, that's not our kinds of people. At the very minimum, live and let live. That's what most people are gonna say. That's their business. I'm not that way. They're not my people. And we relegate them out of our minds. And that's why this question is initially so hard to understand. We're really blessing people that overcome the temptation to lie with any animal system, mother in law, et cetera? The answer is yes, because we need to be thinking about those people. We need to be doing what we can for those people in our minds, in our prayers, and of course, in our actions. If we're really going to take the covenant of this week's parsha seriously, that every Jew is responsible for the activities of every other Jew, 
it's not just some Jews. As the Sporno says, it's even the leadership over which we hold no sway, maybe can't do anything to them. We need to be condemning them. But the Torah is also saying we need to bless them. We need to be encouraging them. We need to be praising them for not engaging in the behaviors that they want. So contrary to how most of us think in our minds that those people that are wicked or perverse are put out of our minds, we must proactively do the opposite. We must be pulling for those people to change for the better in our minds, our prayers, and our actions. And this is the idea of these blessings. These behaviors happen, and we must deal with this reality. Now, I know many of us are thinking right now, but Rabbi, come on, what can I do? Blah, 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 blah. You know, many of you already probably thought 10 times of the word Soros and others, right? The bottom line is this. We have to remember that there's a Nachmanides commentary at the end of these curses that really needs to be mentioned here. I've mentioned it uh, in another year, and the Ramban says that the last of these curses says, cursed is the person that does not uphold the words of this Torah. Nachmanides has many famous comments to this sentence, but one of the ones that are not enough famous is where he says, what does the Torah mean? Cursed is the person that does not uphold the words of this Torah, says Nachmanides. You know who we're talking about? We're talking about a tzaddik gamor. Okay? A completely righteous person that he learns the Torah. He does the Torah. He guards the Torah, right? The thing that we're all vying for in just about a week's time to be written immediately in the book of the completely righteous, right? That's where we want to be written and sealed right away on Rosh Hashanah. Says the Ramban, that person who really, for all intents and purposes, belongs in that book, well, guess what? He has the ability to help wicked people, to help people that are breaking the Torah. And he doesn't uphold the words of the Torah by helping those people who are wicked and breaking the Torah. He's cursed, just like those people that lie with the sister, lie with any animal. This complete tzaddikomer, that's the language of the Ramban, is cursed because he's not doing what he can to uphold the words of the Torah for the people that are completely wicked. That's the Ramban. That's the last of these curses. Now, the thing is, we don't take that seriously enough. If we did, then it wouldn't be so so surprising when I asked the question, really, we're yelling out loud, blessed is the person that doesn't do all these travesties? It wouldn't be so shocking. The only reason it's so shocking is because we have already excised those people from our minds. But in our Parsha, Parsha's Nitzavim, the Torah is telling us one more major aspect. It's so major, it is the answer to how can we prevent a complete decay of the Jewish national security in Israel and across the globe. Because for sure, that's on everybody's mind, anti-Semitism, the threat of all the nations that want to wipe us out. What is it going to take to prevent <clears throat> the Jewish people from again being cast out of Eretz Israel and not accepted into any country in the world, which happened just less than 100 years ago. What's it going to take? The Torah tells you explicitly in our parsha. Very simple. Lest there be a man among you 
or a woman or a family or even a whole tribe. And they decide they're seceding from the union. What's going to happen? Hashem is going to wipe them out. Question. What did we Jews do about those people? The answer is we did nothing. And that's why all the Jews were exiled. Because we let Hashem get rid of the single person, the single family, or the single tribe. We said, you know what? That's not my business. Live and let live. God will take care of those people. He did take care of those people. And then he kicked all of us out of the land because the covenant is that we have to care about all those people and not just say, oh, Hashem will take care of those people. And that's why the Torah presents such a dramatic shift from the person, lest there be a person among you who will stray and say, hey, I'll do whatever I want. And it could be a family, it could be a widow, it could be, I'm sorry, a family, it could be a tribe. And we do nothing about it. Hashem will erase them from under the heavens. Hashem will cut them off from the people and he'll kick the rest of us out of the land of Israel. That's what happens. And so therefore the attitude that we have today of basically saying that those Jews are already lost, let's not think about them. There's nothing we can do, or let's go even a little bit more dramatic, if you will. Unfortunately, there are families dealing with certain relatives that have decided that Yiddishkeit is not for them, either marrying a non-Jew or declaring general rejection for Judaism and monotheism, or even, God forbid, marrying a member of the same gender. Those things are pretty close to home in many people's families. Many, many, many religious families are close to those situations. So what's our option? Yeah, well, no, forget about them, reject them, never deal with them. You know, cursed, they are cursed. Sure, that's true. But we have to equally try to get to a point where we can bless them, where we can say, hey, you know what, maybe they are changing or can change. In our own minds, we have to be pulling for them. We have to do whatever we can that would bring them closer. We have to think strategically about what would be a way to build a better relationship with them so that we can, at some point, have a better say or influence in their lives. And if we don't care about them, that's how we get kicked out of Eretz Israel again. And the Torah is explicitly saying this by the way it says, you'll have these people among you. God will separate them. God will cut them off. He will erase them from under the heavens. And you're all going to wonder why you're in exile. <laughs> That's what the Torah says. And you know what the answer is? Because collectively, we didn't follow the covenant that every Jew is part of our nation. And we need to be thinking in our minds and in our prayers and in our actions about each and every Jew. Now, there are things that are less, call it intense, that we also need to be thinking about and are very real and are earlier steps. A suggestion was made today by my friend Joseph Rackman, for example, hakaras hatov in general. Sometimes we forget to acknowledge any good that some people do or the obvious good or the expected good that we think people should do. So an example that comes to mind is for is a homeowners association where you have people in a small, let's say, company group taking care of the homeowners association. Guess how often a member of that community goes over to those people and says, you know what, I really appreciate it. That was a good job. That was good security, 
good whatever in the clubhouse, good, good whatever, parking, anything. Like never is the answer. So much so that, that in my friend Joseph's experience, he compliments someone, they almost fainted. He couldn't believe, they couldn't believe that, that they were being complimented. And we forget that we live in that kind of community in those situations, like a homeowner's situation, or in a shul kind of community. I always say, and I think Rabbi Chiel will agree with me, um, because I'm sure he lived this for many years, the Gabbai is the least thanked person in shul, not to mention the most insulted or unappreciated. Usually doing some of the hardest work, maybe all of the hardest work. That's the typical thing, because you know we don't really think about other people. We don't appreciate the good. And all the more so when they're bad, we just cut them off. They don't exist. We don't have anything to do with them. And that is the major, major underscoring and extra lesson of Parshas Nitzavim. If that's our attitude, we can be assured of one thing. We don't belong in Eretz Israel. And now more than ever in these times, when we are so worried about the rise of hatred against Jews and all of those types of powder kegs in the world that are becoming more volatile and ready to explode, the Torah is telling us very, very clearly, if we want to have a real chance of holding on to Eretz Israel, holding on to the relative security of our people that we have been enjoying for so, so many decades, we must improve in this area. And I would suggest that another practical way to come to feel these feelings and to take different actions is to remember our own Pasts. I'm sure most of us can think of behaviors in which we've engaged that give us shame or mortification. We cannot believe how we resorted to that kind of low behavior, whether it was insulting a person or any kind of a various sin of slander or anything. And we think, okay, you know what? Thank God that's not us. And, you know, we hope that we repented, but we forget that it's not so hard to fall so far. And we have to remember that it's both very human and people can change and people can grow just like hopefully we have and give other people that opportunity in our minds. Forget about, forget about what we actually do to help them. Let's at least try in our minds to give them the opportunity that that can happen and therefore deal with them with that mindset as opposed to the opposite. A friend of mine was sharing with me that uh, unfortunately one of the members of his own family, married uh, same gender, and they are coming to spend Yom Kippur with him and his family. And he was asking me how should he handle the concept of this couple, so to speak, wanting to go to Shul. And the truth is, we have to be very careful. How do we deal with those people? What kind of message do we send them? Is Shul something they should do? Or are we telling them, what are you crazy, right? These are real issues. And we have to think very carefully for the benefit of those people, because we have to remember that at the same time the Torah tells us to condemn succumbing and failure in these areas, the Torah also tells us to be equally open and positive and praising and blessing progress and overcoming those temptations. Those are real people with real challenges, and we have an obligation to think of them as part of our nation. So hopefully with all this in mind, we can appreciate better that major ceremony that was done on Mount Rizim and Mount Eval. We can imagine the Levium and ourselves 
doing a rousing cheer even for these most difficult and seemingly perverse crimes and sins. And remember that the security of today is completely dependent on how we think in our minds and act with our behaviors towards any person that is saying to themselves, you know what, I don't wanna be part of this covenant. I wanna just do whatever I wanna do. Nothing bad has to happen to me. How are we thinking about those people? Are we just gonna say, okay, Hashem, you take care of it. That's none of my business. Or are we gonna think to ourselves, okay, what do I need to do? How can I help? As the Ramban says, a tzaddik needs to assess what are the meaningful actions and help that he can give to those people, because if not, he is cursed just like those people. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akiva. Good class. Uh, pleasure. Very important. Yeah. Rabbi? Um, yes. It's always ironic that the week you put out something I haven't experienced. <laughs> um, what are, I guess the question is, and then the experience is secondary. You observe something in family and friends, um, a six-year-old child in a family that's somewhat traditional deciding that she is a boy. Decide she's a boy. What are the bad, what are the um, speaking points? What are the organizations within Torah that this is not a family that is from? But they, young kosher, they know they have Shabbos, you know. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is if I'm not, if I am going to take meaningful actions, I need to know the boundaries of what I can do, what I can't do. I'm not a close friend of the children; it's a grandchild. And um, what role, what 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 is out there in the Torah community that can help shape a reaction? and a different trajectory because it's very early in the game and it's a decision. And I just want to put out something ironic about people naming people. The little girl's name is Leo. And uh, everybody calls her Lili, but she herself declared that she has a boy's name and she wants to dress like a boy and be a boy. And she's six years old. So I don't even, you know what? Adorable little, you know, person. But what could a person do who is in that environment at this and do as an intervention that's appropriate? Because I'm a friend of the family, long distance. My girlfriend is the grandmother, and she comes from a traditional home and has chosen to live in, you know, somewhat traditional ways. That being said, what does the Torah prescribe? This is not a new problem. <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we behave in that way? So uh, I can only give you my own talking points. I've heard very little in terms of organizations that deal. I have done a little bit of research and I forget the name of one of the organizations that I was told. Give me one second because there might be someone here whom I can ask. Yeah, so I'm going to ask uh, some people to do some research on the subject. So I don't know the name right now of organizations. But uh, the talking points that I can give you are, the name of the game is genuine relationship. Of and of course that is built on Always. trust. Right? So that's the name of the game. And the questions become how to build trust. Uh, really the most important relationship are the parents and secondarily everyone else in the family or somebody can step in as a real friend and build a relationship of trust. 
that's first and foremost. Uh, it can be very, very difficult to create relationships of trust, but that's what has to happen first. In terms of talking points, uh, the most important talking point, and this is something, something that I've been developing together with my colleague, Dr. Finkelstein, and some of the Torah messaging that we're planning to do, the most important talking point is that long-term healthy society is built on healthy family. And there is very little possibility of building healthy family when these types of relationships were, let's call it aberrations of proper gender roles and genders is, you know, done. When, when, there's, a, when there's a perversion or a twisting or a changing of what's obviously true, which is a male is a male, female is a female, or that, you know, mother and father are equal important roles for a child to have, whenever that changes, it's very, very difficult to build healthy family. Now, of course, you know, that challenges parents right away to think of, okay, well, what, what is the nature of our relationship? What is the nature of our messaging? And so obviously it's very tough, but that's talking point uh, number two. Talking point number three, which well, I should say that's really talking point number one. <laughs> First thing is just relationship. Another major talking point is that the, it's, it, the issue is not <laughs> one of being perverted or abnormal. The issue is just simply of being healthy and in a, in a person's um, life, being able to function you know, really well and really normally, which leads to the next question of what is normal, which I'm gonna beg off on for today. I'm actually in the current uh, process of analyzing that myself. I'm making a little bit of progress, but basically, that's how we want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it from the point of view of going to burn in Gehenna, right? We want to talk about it just in terms of what's actually good and healthy for this person and for themselves and for their own emotional well-being. And Rabbi, I, I want to say, I'm sorry, uh, somebody, uh, I think, I'm not sure who uh, said this on the chat, but it does speak to your what you're saying, what is normal. Um, we in the traditional community are observing a cultural acceptance in families and extended families and friends of, re of relationships that aren't appropriate. And ironically, in this particular family, uh, a, a part of the family that's remained Shomer Shabbat and, and, and attached has a young man married to a young man with a baby and everybody decided it was okay. So it's quite complicated as to what it goes back to our responsibility. I think that's the key is what you're giving over today. Yeah. So, so I just want to mention that in addition to those things that I said, and then I want to get to Sylvia's question. And I'm also addressing the question that's posted on the chat is we always have to be careful to say that we subscribe to what the Torah says is right and good, but that doesn't mean that we either hate or reject or call perverted people who are not accepting what the Torah says is right and good. People unfortunately do unhealthy behaviors and we, it's not that we, that's what I'm trying to say, it's not that we accept that that's good. We just accept them as people hoping that they're gonna do better and we don't pretend that those behaviors in our eyes are truly good. We don't pretend that. We say, no, the Torah is against those behaviors, but I'm not against you. Okay. Yeah, and of course, we also do things wrong. And that's why you know I included that in our, in our talk as well, remembering our own 
activities, etc. Yes, Sylvia, you just have to unmute, please. Okay, I would like um, Frida to contact me to please call me. I don't have the dexterity or the know-how to write that in a thing. Okay, uh, perfect. A, uh, B, you know, I think Thank in you. the situations where you have couples or people, um, what I what I did, um, which anyway, which what I found helpful was when they're not when they're in public, they're doing behaviors that are just you know if, if they're at the dining room table they're just eating in the table if, if, if they're in shul they're they're dominating they're not doing any behaviors that are not inappropriate you know that they're, they're just engaging in dining they're engaging in prayer they're engaging in you know it, the, i just addressing the behaviors that are that are that are exhibited at present yeah, so so that's another important element is that a person in their declaration of what's right and good according to the Torah is allowed and should say that, so to speak, in my house, you know, we don't openly do those things that the Torah says we don't do, because I'm not going to tacitly say that's okay. So I'm going to no, ask I'm, you, that, you know, what I think that, is okay, most of what yeah. you think is okay. So you're having, so you're, you have a relative, let's say, who's, who's involved in, in this relationship and they bring their significant other at the dining room table. They're just dining. Yes. You know, at, you know, right. they're, yeah. they're not, we hope, you know, that that's part of what, what people are dealing with. We hope. And then do you tell them you can't do this? You know, those are part of the complexities, it's, but I'm saying, yes, we do. There, there's a, okay. there's a okay. give and take, you know, they know that they're, but you know what? There's always, I don't mean to be too simplistic, but there's really always a give and take with all, with, you know, and well, I, there should again, be. that goes back yeah. to relationship. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there should be. Right. Yeah. It, it does start but, with I, I thought that so, so personally, I find in that situation, I find it helpful to just address the behavior that is going on in the present without the entire title and the entire, you know, thing. Yeah. That's Thank what you I very think. much, Sylvia. Okay. Um, Rebecca Rosenthal, I, I, I hope I answered your question. If not, please let me know. Well, the challenge is that, <clears throat> first of all, what Sylvia was saying was that we hope that they behave. That's the one of the questions. Do you invite people and say you can come, but there are ground rules. You have to behave a certain way. You cannot. No, I just uh, assume let, they're going to behave. Well, we can't people, assume. You know, people, yeah, so, 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 people, so, right, so let me ask you, I'm sorry to cut you off. So let me just ask you, Rabiakul, what do you think is going to happen in that situation that you're having in mind if you ask that question and you pose it with respect? What's going to happen in your mind? What do you project? So it, it, it really depends on the other people. Sometimes they have an agenda. Sometimes people are uneducated and they don't know better. So it's a trick. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I'm asking you. Knowing the situation, thinking of a specific case, what would you project in a specific case? Oh, no, I don't have a, spe I don't have a specific okay. case. But that's the answer. The answer is if you can't imagine that conversation going well, then you know you probably don't have that conversation. But if there's enough of a relationship where that conversation can happen, then yes. But of course, for a purpose, you know, which means, is it useful in some capacity? And will it help them down the line? 
to have the relationship with you? If that if that's the case, then the answer can definitely be yes, but definitely it's case specific. You have to be comfortable that that's useful and can go well. Okay. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Wishing everyone a, a great day, and Bez Hashem, we will be on again next week before Rosh Hashanah. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Thank you all. The main thing is to work on the